Welcome back to Swiftly Speaking, folks. This episode 16, and I'm joined today by Kate Houston, who is an engineering director for native apps at DuckDuckGo. We've got stacks of things to talk about, including how important privacy is for app developers, what it means working in open source, and also how she crafts her wonderful presentations at conferences. Plus, if you're attending live, you can ask questions. Get in the chat window, let us know what you'd like to talk about, and I'll get those and really grill Kate on those as we progress. Uh, and I want to say thank you for coming along. If you do have the temptation to tweet something mean about me or Kate or anything in the world, you get an instant ban. You know the rules by now, folks. We've got moderators on the call. They'll just ban you and block you and Tarai can go and harass somebody else instead. Uh, I want to say thank you to our sponsor this time. It's Instabug. They have a one-stop SDK for doing bug reporting, crash reporting, application performance monitoring, and much, much more. Go and check them out at instabug.com. Kate, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. It's so nice to see you. Yeah, we've met, I think, uh, let's see, uh, London and Bologna, I want to say, and no, no, Verona, 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 and New York, yes. New York as well. Uh, so now, obviously, virtually as well. <laughs> yeah, you sent me flowers after I um, introduced you at TriSwift, which like has set the bar for everybody I introduce. Nobody else has met it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm making it harder for everyone else. That's my job around here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, listen, um, I realize you are at, at home. You've been locked down for quite a while. I think you're out of it now in Ireland. Uh, we are now out of it in the UK, but the format of the show is nice and simple. It's very relaxed, chatty way to us about coding, about Swift, about app development, and much, much more. And in particular, I mean, if I say duck, duck, go to people, the first thing they're going to think about is privacy. I mean, they just are, right? They're going to think straight away, that's a place I can go without being tracked, without being monitored, without being spied on, without being, you know, well, that's what they call it, reselling of adverts, where you appear months later, an advert for shoes, you bought a shoe once, whatever. That's what you think about. So I kind of want to get straight into this topic with you because there's so much to discuss as app developers, and I want to start with the absolute basics because mm -hmm. I, why is it, in the most basic level, why is it important for app developers like the folks here, like me, to take user privacy seriously? I mean, do users really care? Are they caring now more than they did but previously? Yeah, people do care. The problem is people think it's hopeless. So Ooh. actually, yeah. <laughs> We're starting spicy, right? Um, you know, so the public's actually ranked data privacy as like America's most pressing social issue um, for like two years in a row, right? It's just they don't actually think it's possible to have privacy. And they've kind of bought into this idea that like selling your personal information or like trading your personal information is like part of the deal for getting like products and services for free, right? Mm -hmm. Which, okay, if you're building a social network, maybe. I don't know. But like when you're building something that people are actually paying for, right? Like you're building a food delivery service or whatever. Like, do you really need to know absolutely everything about them to give them the service they're paying for? So, you know, it's just just like ethically, right? <laughs> the like tracking, the tracking thing is just gone absolutely wild. And, you know, the other thing for me personally that, that really made me kind of want to work in this space is 
um, if you think about what happened with Brexit, if you think about what happened with the 2016 election, a lot of that was done by buying people's information, buying people's information and manipulating them, right? Mm. And you can see because they're like the desired outcome on these services is addiction. And so you can start on Facebook and you can start on um, YouTube and you start with Fox News and you end up at the far right, right? Why is that? Because there is an algorithm tracking everything you do, right? And the desired end state is obsessive behavior. It's like spending more time there, clicking more on ads, being deeper into this into this hole. And like, what's obsessive behavior? You know, like what gets the, the obsessive behavior most effectively is actually the conspiracy theories, right? And so, you know, it starts at like, oh yeah, you've got a little bit more information than you need to be. And you end up at this like collapse of society Right, which is done <laughs> through manipulation based on having people's personal information. And like that, like I worry a lot about the collapse of society. Like, do I worry that Instagram thinks I have a pet? Like, no, I think it's funny because I don't have a pet. I just really love raccoons. But I absolutely worry <laughs> about this like obsessive behavior track and the way that it's spreading misinformation and just like damaging the fabric of our society. Mm. You, you mentioned ethics there. And that's, you say going in spicy, because I, I don't think enough developers consider ethics part of their job. Mm -hmm. and I've, I, I've said previously, I, I went through this whole process of becoming a, a chartered engineer previously, uh, which is a reserved term in most parts of Europe and some of the, of the US, where you've got to go through a, a, a process of proving your past work and what you've done. And nowhere do they ask you, how many lines of code you've written. No, nowhere do they ask you if it's MVC or MVVM or whatever, what to think of Swift 5.4. It's about ethics and mentoring and the environment and sustainability and so many other things. And you've got to find this thing. What have you done to contribute to good ethical behavior in software mm -hmm. engineering? And I think if more developers had to sit down and answer that question, what have you personally done to contribute to good ethics in our industry? Mm -hmm. We might see, I think, a very different approach to development, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's probably true. You know, honestly, I see it a lot when I'm interviewing people and I'm kind of hiring. It's like, you know, what are you looking for in your next job? And people talk a lot about how they want a job that's like a net positive in the world. You know, mm. it's something I care a lot about too, right? And it's not necessarily the easiest thing to find. You know, there's plenty of app, do app jobs out there, app development. They'll pay you pretty well. Yeah. But then if you actually like look at what you're doing, you know, then you might have like moral quandaries about it, right? So, you know, for example, there's a food delivery service that I will not name. And, you know, food delivery seems like a, a good thing, right? But they are tracking everything the users do. And their desired end state is for people to use that app every day. Now, is that going to be good for people's finances, for people's health, for like the restaurant business, because the cut they take is so intense? Like, you know, I think there's, there's things that we do in the, the industry that like, you know, if we did them moderately would not necessarily be harmful. But if we're going to take them to the absolute full extent and, and, you know, aim for billion dollar companies and endless growth and whatever, then sometimes the like desired outcome is actually a level of obsessive behavior or, you know, extreme behavior that doesn't serve those individuals. Right. And I guess there's also an element of almost prurient interest. I mean, I remember uh, seeing what Spotify 
knew about me with like you can request your data whatever that's called in in mm-hmm. Europe and you get a big dump of everything you've ever touched ever in Spotify including like you connected with this brand of bluetooth headphones at this time and da, 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 da. I'm like well why do you want to know that i mean uh, yes the songs i play fine the playlists sure. i make how many i have do i constantly play the same taylor swift soundtrack again and again and again fine um, you do don't you i know we all know you're playing that same taylor swift song. i'm a big tay fan what can i say um, <laughs> but the you know outside of spotify you know bluetooth headphone brands that's a bit private and i i wouldn't expect that to be tracked and i wonder to what extent i mean like for if you're on the web people mm-hmm. think this this site's gonna track me i mean you just kind of assume it right you just assume mm-hmm. the website's gonna track the heck out of you Maybe mm-hmm. we think of apps as being different. Maybe we assume apps are on my phone. It's my app on my phone. It's going to be private. And actually, that isn't true. As you've said, this particular unnamed delivery app will track whatever they possibly get away with. Yeah. And then the thing with Spotify there too, it's like you're paying for Spotify. Exactly. So, you know, like you're paying for this service and they're still harvesting your data. And then like, who knows what they're doing with it? What does, if you read the terms of service agreement, even if you did read it, did you understand it? Because most of them are completely incomprehensible and deliberately yeah. so. Deliberately so, yeah, exactly. So let's say uh, you you were to uh, go and do some consulting for a food delivery company. And, <laughs> and, 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 and obviously there's some pressure from on high from CEO or something or CFO yeah. saying there are financial business interests in their head to track everything. Mm-hmm. How, how would you advise them what data should actually be tracked? I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to what's actually needed to make decisions, right? And I think we have this default now, track absolutely everything. And and you're right, like the same things are being tracked from apps as are being tracked on the web. And that's why Apple just just kind of release this latest change to kind of cut down on that, right? But, you know, we have metrics for the DuckDuckGo app, right? But what we don't have is like this individual user that opened this website and did these, these, these things. Like, we don't have any of that. We just have straightforward metrics that are ones that allow us to make decisions. So we, for example, know how many times the bookmarks tab gets open a day or how many times share gets open a day or um, what's another good example? Um, how many bookmarks are added a day? But we don't know what bookmarks. We don't know who, <laughs> you know? It's, we don't even know when. We just have these aggregate numbers, right? And so then from that, we can make decisions. We can say, okay, well, actually, you know, bookmarks, we know we have like roughly this many daily active users. Um, we know that bookmarks get open this much. We know that shares get op- share gets open this much. So we can say that share is a more important action than bookmarks. And that actually is enough to make a lot of decisions. Hmm. And so off the back of that, you're thinking to yourself, presumably here's everything we could track. Here are things that just know <laughs> we we don't this look <laughs> look very bad if we track these things. These things eh, we probably could track, but it sounds like you've actually cut it right down to the absolute minimum you need to track to produce a good app. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean I think it's the default, right? Like so the default out in the world is like track literally everything and tie it exactly to the person. Mm. Right? And our default is to track nothing. And we have no way of tying any data to any user. Like it's just not even like, it's not in our like concept of the world. And so then we just track like just numbers, 
you know how many times this how many times that and it's enough it's enough for like you know like definitely are there times where i'm like oh i wish we knew a little bit more about this but like we have enough information to make decisions it's not a problem my understanding is that uh this is the hearsay is the way apple works is the default is track nothing and if you want to track something you've got to get executive sign off to do that to say this is why my rationale of why this must be tracked and then they'll say yes or no based on every individual use case which is flipping on its head basically track nothing and only expand outwards if you really really need to which i think is refreshing right yeah totally we do something similar we have something called privacy triage you know and um you know these things come up we check the metrics regularly and we say do we need these for example so we might release a new feature and have some metrics to know how much that gets used and then over time we might say like we don't actually need that anymore and we'll just opt to delete it oh nice so let's say you've you've, you've picked out the six seven eight things you think okay these 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 need to be tracked how you then decide what should go remote that's when it gets serious right because you, you've left the local device you've gone remote yeah and of course you end up with tracking networks and ad targeting and all that kind of horror if it goes really remote but you know you've got local you've got on your server then you've got sort of shared with the world how do you decide that yeah i mean so i actually wouldn't say we're like we're not tracking anything right we're just measuring some things so we just know how many times Right. Right. And so there's no like, oh, how do you decide what should be tracked? Like there's no nothing gets tracked. There's like we have some decisions about what we would want to measure. Right. And so then, you know, think about feature development. Right. So we just released a new menu for the iOS app. I think it's a huge improvement. Like try it out. And like we want to know that people can find things on that menu. <laughs> for example, because part of the like goal of that menu was that not enough people could find share functionality. So we do want to know how, you know, how often share is being found, right? And we want to see that like share is being found more now than it was previously, because that shows us that that menu is working, right? And so we're, we're just trying to measure success or not and measure importance or not. And so then it's like, you know, the question is not like, tracking no we don't track the question is what do we need to measure in order to have the information we need to make decisions yeah absolutely I, i'll check it out the new feature i've only recently found you can change the burn animation <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty new people love it yeah I know, which one nice. did you pick the the uh, is it water it sort of mm -hmm. flows away that was nice <laughs> yeah no they're, they're beautiful um we do a lot of um you know, I think to come back to kind of what we started with is, uh, you know, people want privacy, but they don't believe it's possible. Mm. And actually, a lot of what we do is like helping people see that that privacy is possible, you know, and making it a good experience. Like, you know, when did I don't remember the last time I ever clicked my browser cache in Chrome, you know, maybe if something wasn't working, I would do it as a, you know, step to fix it. But like the fire button animation, if it's beautiful, if people really engage with it, then it also was a reminder that like, you know, you may as well clear your data if you don't need it. Right. Nice. I, I like that. It's it, You are encouraging them via shiny things, kind of. <laughs> Look, well, that was fun. I'll, I'll do that again later on. Like, <laughs> yeah, we call it magnetized privacy, right? But there's this huge user education aspect too, right? So one of my friends, I was like, you know, you really got to use the thing that I like spend all my days on, you know? And, um, and she was over and she's, she's like a, she's a therapist just qualifying. And one of my other friends who's a trainee pilot was over, right? And um, this is back when we were allowed to have friends over. And, you know, the trainee therapist was like, 
went on this whole rant about Facebook and how the trainee pilot needed to like, you know, do all this stuff to protect herself. And, and I was like, what happened? She learned it all in the app. Cause we have this like onboarding, we call it DAX dialogue. DAX is the DAX is the duck. And you know, it explains things and it explains when people are trying to track you and what they're trying to do. And like over the course of using this thing, she had learned all about privacy and now was like this passionate advocate for privacy and protecting protecting yourself. Well, that's great, but hold on a second. The duck's got a name. Yeah, it's called DAX. <laughs> T-I-L. <laughs> I hope I was allowed to say that. I don't think it's a secret, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, listen. It's not anymore. Talk- <laughs> no, it's really not. Uh, so we've talked about how uh, there are things that upper management might want to track, potentially everything. And there are things actually you want to kind of, the least you need to track to get a good feature. We've got a great question here from Mark Orpont, who says, uh, how do you persuade upper management to think that way when their mindset is narrowly focused on business financial needs if they're saying we need to attract a b c d e f g d, 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 mm-hmm. to maximize as much money as we can which is kind of their job for shareholders right how do you kind of rein that back in and lower or reduce expectations perhaps to a more sensible area of analytics yeah i mean i think it depends where people are coming from you know if they're coming from like a growth marketing background then mm. Uh, you know, I'm not not optimistic about your chances of success there. Um, but if, if they're coming from a different kind of background, then, you know, the main thing is to understand where they're coming from and what they really care about. And I think this is true, not just for tracking, but in any kind of managing out, right, is that people will often ask for something specific. But, you know, the, the work is to understand what is underlying that specific request, right, and then try and give them what they want in a way that makes sense, you know, maybe as a developer, maybe ethically, like whatever it is. Yeah. I think I view it, uh, tracking analytics, in a very similar way to how I view accessibility. Because some companies Mm -hmm. say, you know, hey, our UI looks great. Sure, those blind folks can't use it, but it looks great for everyone else. And Mm -hmm. what does it say about your values as a company if you're thinking that way? And similarly, Mm -hmm. if you're tracking monitoring measuring everything about the user what does it say about Mm -hmm. you as a company it doesn't say a lot of good things to me as as an end user and particularly thanks to apple now taking a pretty hard line view on the web that it'll you know green shield no trackers available and similar they're watching out for trackers constantly on every site maybe Mm -hmm. that's going to come in in apps at some point we don't know apple are clearly clamping down again 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 uh, in the future uh, there's a great question here yeah. from uh, Michael Najera, Nahera, perhaps. Sorry, Michael. Um, do you agree with anonymous session tracking for bug reports? So in order to know the state of the app and what screens visited right before a crash, for example, how would you handle that? I mean, we're people's web browser. So no. You know, like we won't, just the wherever they were before a crash, like whatever website they were on, like that's their business and we would never... We would never try to know that. And so, you know, we do just accept the certain information that like, yeah, it would be useful, but we're just going to have to live without it because like that's the moral stance, right? Gosh, um, yeah. That's, I mean, for us, that's generally that's a big problem. Like, oh, my app crashed on screen A, B, and C. We'd like to know that. But literally, yeah. if some websites doing some weird JavaScript horror, I don't know what, that maybe takes down your browser and you would really want to know that. 
but you you literally can't because it would burn the whole privacy aspect of the, of the app. So wow. Well, yeah. I mean, we can't know non-consensually. We can't right. assume that we know, but we do have uh, feedback in the app where people can say which sites they think are broken. Hmm. And then we can use that to kind of investigate things, but we don't know like who sent that, for example, right? So we can't trace anything back to a user. We actually had um, a problem yesterday because uh, Akamai, which is like the CDN for half the internet, it turns out, um, put a change that had that was causing some problems in our app based on our user agent. Um, and this is obviously absolute nightmare situation, but we saw it because of our monitoring on broken site reports, right? And so we saw a spike, we investigated, we found out what it was, uh, you know, separately we contacted Akamai and they ended up rolling back the change, but, you know, we had new apps in the app store with a hotfix within uh, two hours of the, of the spike. Wow. There's a question here from uh, the excellently named Clickbait King. Uh, <laughs> is the difference between tracking and measuring anonymity and a bigger focus on that rather than what slash who? Yeah, so yes, but it's not anonymity in as much as like the data is not there. So it's not that we've anonymized the data, it's that we just haven't sent it. Right. So, so many things rely on like IP address. They use fingerprinting. They just send random cookies full of like everything you've ever done. And like that's how they know who you are. Right. And we don't send any of it. Like there's no app ID. Like most apps have a universal app ID that they all send that identifies each user. We don't have that. We don't send anything. We just literally, we call it pixels. And it's just like this button was pressed. That's it. That's all the information. Wow. Nice. And so uh, when it comes to tracking from our perspective for, for apps that aren't DuckDuckGo, how do you think we should be asking users what we can actually do? You know, are we storing diagnostics? Are we storing crash data? Should we show them what mm -hmm. we're storing behind the scenes? And I've already had it something just now in 14.5 the app tracking transparency which is which is good plus there's the privacy notices on the app store and you can like flick a, a toggle in settings track some things and other things but should we we as app developers you think be, be explicitly telling users hey by the way this is what we're tracking is that okay i think the powerful thing about what apple's done is that they've made it so that every app now needs to work with tracking turned off because it can happen. Whereas before, I think it was a given that it was there. And so that fundamentally, I think, changes the conversations for developers, right? Because everything has to work without it, right? And so then you can have this, you know, different conversation, you can have consequences, right? So it's not like, oh, you know, there's no consequences for putting this tracking thing in. Like, we may as well add like six different tracking frameworks because we have six different marketing teams. They always also want something different. It's like, well, actually, <laughs> You know, everything we add, we have to declare. And there's a cost because we put it here. And if we break these rules, we can be rejected from the App Store. And, you know, like Apple, have, I think in this change, like they've encoded this idea of like good app citizenry or not, right? And so then as developers, right, we can advocate the way that we've always advocated for like good app citizenry, you know? Certainly, if I see an app 
with you know a mile long notice on the app store saying it tracks this and this and this. I'm, I'm gonna kind of just know <laughs> that one like, I'll, I'll look somewhere else instead because I, I, I you don't have to know that information to do a, a chess app for example come on i want to play a game of chess or something i'm gonna do all these simple things like this and it's 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 frustrating uh, th- yeah. there's a question here from uh prathamesh kawaka who asks uh he says that there was a tweet uh, a few months ago that said something, something like uh no data collected means your app is a side project not a real business now clearly ddg is now a serious business it's massive now right yeah no we've been growing i mean what what does this tweet by mean by no data collected right like obviously you know does it mean no data processed because then like sure right you know we're processing search requests we're serving search results we you know have metrics like whatever but um yeah i mean that just sounds like a growth hackers viral tweet, you know? It's just like thought leadership, right? Mm. But a very superficial thought and leading us nowhere in particular. Okay. There's a question here from G's Wiz, who says, uh, companies only want private data because advertisers don't want private data. So how do you convince an advertiser that measuring is better than tracking for targeting their ads? So contextual ads are shown to be very nearly as effective as personalized ads. So I think this kind of idea that like, oh, personalized ads, like it's not true. Like the data doesn't back it up. Like, you know, DuckDuckGo makes money through advertising too, Mm. right? But purely contextual advertising. We don't have to be creepy. We're not following people around the web. If somebody searches for a a Range Rover, we show them advertisements for a Range Rover, you know? Like, and that actually, you know, is enough. Right. Um, but, you know, like I think the contextual ad is like you looked for a vacation in this place one time and you were dreaming and now it's following you around the web forever. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, maybe advertisers want that. But like my question is, like, why? What are the numbers really? Mm. You know, and then just like ethically. Right. Is this is this like building casino slot machines? Really? Like if what you're doing is like following people around until they finally give in, like, you know, <laughs> that, I mean, there's I'll a word for that. I'll keep showing ads and like, buy the damn Hoover, come on. <laughs> yes, but that's, I mean, that's stalkery, right? Like, it's not, you know, it's not like an ethical, moral way to operate, right? And, you know, I think we have uh, been going through a bit of a, like, amoral phase in society, you know, and I hope that that we're, like, starting to be a bit more considerate about the impact that we're having on the environment, on each other and society as a whole. So to clarify for simpletons like me, a contextual ad is one where I've searched for Land Rover, I see Land Rover ads, whereas a personalized Mm -hmm. ad is I search for Land Rover, it says previously you searched for X and Y and Z and who knows what, links it together into what you really want is this book you searched for last week. Is that? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so it sounds like what you're saying contextual alone literally what do you want right now gets you most if not all of the way there mm-hmm. yeah nice okay and so let's move on a little bit i want to talk about just briefly uh if we assume we've figured out the handful of things you want to actually track we figured out ha- measure, how much tra- <laughs> we figured out how much transparency we want to give to users and we're ready to go mm-hmm. how can then we then actually measure or even if you choose to track users in a privacy secure manner 
Yeah, I mean, what we do, there's a, a site called Improving DuckDuckGo, um, and it just it's just a pixel. We call it a pixel, so it just fetches a number and just hmm. adds to so a character, it. essentially. Yeah, nice. it's very it's very simple. It's very straightforward. So the key really is forget the word tracking entirely and measure, <laughs> measure yeah. across the board. Exactly. So that, that's super clear. <laughs> I love the <laughs> takeaway here. And, it, and honestly, it's something because... It, it's not that I'm I'm slow. It's just that I'm thinking about you know architecture and jazz and all the rest of the time. If I can have a one-liner to tell folks, hey, you are asking for this. Could we instead do this simpler version and get us most, if not all, of the way there? That's mm -hmm. that suits me perfectly because I can I can make that put pitch. I can make that sell to ad sales and analytics and marketing very very easily. I can remember that because small brain, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, listen, Kate, I, I want to move on to open source, but just briefly, you are, uh, you know, the engineering director for Native Apps. If any of your team have some time and want to talk some code about the specifics of privacy and uh, their ethical approaches, send them my way. Go on. Yeah, <laughs> we would bud. love that. I think that would be great. Yeah, we have some really interesting things going on that we would love to talk to you about. Sweet. Let's do that. Well, let's move on anyway to our next topic, which is open source, because... Mm -hmm. uh, DDG is 100% open source, all on GitHub, uh, the iOS app, that is. You can go and see it on GitHub and read through the code. How does that actually help you? Um, so we have a core value at DuckDuckGo, which is about building trust. And, you know, we use that in the way that we work with each other. And we use it in how we approach our users, too, right? And... For us, having the source code be open, be out in the open is part of that building trust, right? Like, it's very easy to say, like, yeah, trust is we don't track, you know, but actually, like, giving people the source code, like, they can look at it themselves and, like, verify that for themselves, which I think is really important. Um, we also have uh, Tracker Radar, um, which is open source, and, like, Tracker Radar is our like list of known trackers and what we use in the app to kind of block. Um, and so, you know, this is something that people can use. Oh, this and smarter encryption is the other thing that we have, right? And so this can be used for people to like be part of the infrastructure for a more private internet. Um, and Apple actually used Tracker Radar for their tracking protections and like we're credited deep in the settings page somewhere, but it was a very exciting <laughs> for, for us, yeah. Way, 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 way down. <laughs> remember it, it was at um the last the thing in uh whatever it was september but i was so distracted by the like ios 14 is coming out tomorrow morning that i've just blanked out everything that happened there i think they they make it they haven't announced it but they must make a lot of money from google uh apple so they want to mention ddg quite quite low down the list of uh, <laughs> thank yous i presume <laughs> thing is that like you know we work with them on on this stuff and you know like they are a company that really values privacy you know and um yeah i mean i think that that apple is genuinely trying to be ethical in a lot of ways yeah so from a, a, a more broad perspective do you think uh going open source might help other companies achieve more trust for example I mean, it depends what they open source, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> once your code is public, people can look at it, right? And then you have the opportunity based on the way they respond to it to like either build or erode trust. Um, 
you know, we had an incident last year, which we refer to as Favicon Gate, and Favicons have become a tr trigger word for me after that, honestly. But um, <laughs> essentially, we have this, uh, on the back end, we have a Favicon service, right? So, you know, Favicons are like small yeah. icons. Little icons. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. And, you know, the thing about the web is that there are protocols, but they're very optional, you know? And so something as small as like a little image that represents your website can actually be like a world of pain. Is it at website slash favicon or is it at, you know, something else, .ico or, or whatever. And so in, obviously we need favicons in our search results. So we have a backend service that like deals with all the ambiguity and nonsense on the web and shows the favicons in the search results. We were using that service in our apps for bookmarks. And obviously it followed the exact same rules as everything else. You know, there was no personal data. There was a call to the service. There was just an image. Nothing was tracked. But people went into our open source repo and was like, oh, the app's phoning home. It's sending my, sending my, it's sending my websites back. And it's like, well, you know, that's actually not what's happening because, you know, if you actually read the code, this, this and that. But it was not, you know, People got really worked up about it and they got worked up about it on Reddit and they got worked up about it on the terrible orange website. And, you know, <laughs> they got worked up on it on our GitHub repo, right? Which is great because that's people's work environment and people on there, you know, like it's fine to have a complaint, but like at some point you're just abusing people in, it's like coming into somebody's office and screaming at them, you know, like <laughs> GitHub is, right? Like, <laughs> which is obviously inappropriate, but like that's where, you know, the developers do their job. So, you know, but we like heard the feedback and we had to, you know, we dealt with it. We like did it locally. We degraded the user experience for the sake of a kind of privacy optics issue, you know, and then, you know, we worked to fix it sub subsequently. And it, like, I sound a bit like cynical about this whole experience because to be, to be honest, I am, you know, but at the same time, you know, like this is the pro and con of the open source repo, right? Is that you put it out there and people look at it. And sometimes on a what seem what you expected to be a perfectly normal Wednesday, you have something that is not based in fact, but based in optics, right? And then you have to deal with it. Right. And I was proud in the end of the way we deal dealt with it, you know, everything, you know, we, we bias towards more local development, which is, you know, another thing that we could talk about. But you know, if we double down on it, right? Like you can have these optics issue and you can, if you handle them badly, then it just becomes like a public fight in your open source repo that then can just erode your relationship with your user base. I guess the issue for DDG and also Apple is that <laughs> it's not enough to do the right thing. You've got to be seen to do the right thing as well. You say the optics of it have to be right. Uh, no one yeah. wants even even a hint that it goes the other way. Even though technically it's all correct, if it feels like it isn't quite going correct, then you've got a bit of a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think once there's like a public argument on social media, like all nuance is lost. You know, you can't actually like explain it. You can't, you know, and especially for something like that, because it's something that like, moderately informed people would be like, oh, Favicons, they're nothing. Why would you possibly, you know, it's like, well, actually, like, 
because of the way the internet works <laughs> and because of this and because of that like it's not just as straightforward as you make the same request and you get it you know mm. and do you think it matters whether sort of project artifacts and metadata are also in the open such as bug reports and backlogs and that similar yeah i think it depends but again it's the kind of thing that like once it's public sometimes that conversation becomes public and that can be an overhead that people don't necessarily want you know so i think about kind of open source projects in like three kind of themes right so there are open source products which is what DuckDuckGo falls into. And there are open source platforms like Drupal, WordPress, and then there are open source libraries, right? And when you're an open source product, you're trying to serve your existing user base. And like that user base is not necessarily engaging with you on GitHub. And it's not necessarily a productive place to have those discussions. Right. I, I know I get emails from folks regularly saying, oh, you know, I, I, I really wish Apple would open source Swift UI. And I get that. I too would love to see the inner uh, nightmares of SwiftUI, for example. But open sourcing software isn't just about releasing the code. Mm -hmm. Unless your company's unless your company's shutting down, fine, dump the code. Or like you know, mm -hmm. old versions of Doom, for example. That's a historical interest. Effectively, it's also about making a commitment to support the community and respond to feedback and handle bug reports and merge pull requests and do code review. And da, 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 da. It's actually a very big commitment to handle open source effectively. Not just, boom, there's the code. Anyone can do that, right? There's the code, ta-ra then. But in, you're making a little contract there that you care about the results. You're going to read what people say and actually engage with the community. And that's, that's mm -hmm. a lot of work, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between maintaining an open source community and writing code in public, right? And we're on the writing code in public side. And, you know, for Apple and SwiftUI, like, you know, they have the Swift community. And I think they're doing a reasonable job there, you know? But the SwiftUI, like, it's not really, like, even if they could write code in public, like, that's not enough for people, you know? Like, they're going to be disappointing people regardless. <laughs> so, like, why take on the overhead, you know? Like, I, I can see the argument there. Yeah. Now, do you think that all the work you do in open source actually affects the kind of folks who apply for jobs there? Yeah, I mean, we've hired people who've contributed. Um, but like I said, we're more of this like white code in public style. Um, I think it can help people have a better sense of what they might work on, what the code base is like. You know, when you're in a, when people are interviewing, um, this can be this can be a, this can make it an easier sell. They're like, oh, what are you using here? What are you using there? It's like, actually, it's all open source. So like, you can look yourself <laughs> and kind of form your own opinion, you know? Yeah. Well, um, presu presumably, I, that also means sorry. that if they're asking those questions, it means they haven't looked ahead of time. So it's kind of saying a little bit about the candidate as well. Well, yeah, but you know, I think sometimes people don't expect it to be. So we've started like adding it in our candidate communications and stuff, but I'm not like I don't really fault people for like how much how much research they've done um, at that point. Like I think it's very understandable if somebody like applying for jobs is can be a lot of work. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I remember a quote of yours, which is, uh, "I never got to be part of an inclusive team until I <laughs> ran one." Um, has you being in the open source? help broaden the range of applying folks that make it, you know, who want to be there in the first place, be with you? Yeah, I mean, totally, right? Um, 
I think when you want to build a diverse team, like there's no shortcut, you, you just have to do the work. So you have to revisit your process, you have to do the outreach, um, and you have to make sure that the team you have is one where under-indexed people can see themselves succeeding. So having somebody who, you know, is an under-indexed person in a position of power, I think helps a lot. Mm. Um, I think beyond that, you know, like I'm very outspoken about not just like the inclusion of, of women, but also kind of uh, like the like also kind of the work that needs to be done to be like kinder and like less less transphobic and less racist as a society, let's say. And so I think that encourages people to know that like if they're on the team that I'm running, you know, they don't need to do like 101 trans education or like, you know, just like the basics <laughs> of anti-racism, right? And that I'm like brought into doing that work and committed to making a space that where they can be successful. And I do think that helps. Um, but, you know, like, there's still the other stuff that we need to do, right? Like we've done a lot of work on our hiring process. We continue to do a lot of work on our hiring process. And part of it is just, we were asking people to do a lot of work, right? And under-indexed people are more likely to be time poor. Right, exactly. Okay, so thinking about how uh, open source as a whole, it's just writing code in, in public is what you're doing, but also it builds trust and more. Presumably, mm -hmm. as with Apple, one of the core goals of open source is that different people build their own stuff using your code and hopefully, in theory, contribute changes back to your repositories. Do you find that happens often? Have Apple opened any PRs for you recently? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's the dream of open source, but like the reality of open source development today is that the majority of people working on open source are in fact paid to work on open source. Hmm. Um, and so either it supports some kind of business objective or like it's sufficiently critical that people are paid to maintain it. And like I said, like, you know, we're an open source product, right? And open source products are rarely very kind of popular for external contributions, right? Like the people who might contribute are your most devoted users who also happen to be developers and who also happen to be free time, have free time, which is like a very small subset honestly, you know, and um, so, yeah, we have some, but but not so much. And then, you know, libraries, I think, is much more prevalent a model in the mobile open source community and, like, the development and contribution back to libraries. Something we did uh, when I was working on WordPress, too, was to, like, try and improve uh, adoption and interest in our open source libraries was with that we followed this strategy of componentization and we created and released more open source libraries that we were also using ourselves because it supported us building multiple apps. Um, and that was, you know, I think that was effective. It was a good strategy that is, is still being pursued. At DuckDuckGo, like we're more in the space of using other people's libraries at this point, but like, of course we can contribute back to them. Uh, and do you? I don't know how much we've contributed. We contribute some things. Um, we have some. We had a we had a really interesting project recently that I can't talk about. <laughs> but there was <laughs> there was some interesting open source library work that kind of could have been done as part of that. I guess, yeah. Okay. And there's a question here from uh, Shalom Mandel who says, uh, "What tips do you have to start with open source?" Because it's a common view that working open source can help build someone's 
career, perhaps about gaining mm. real-world experience and similar. So I'd love to hear your views on this as it relates to folks who have less free time as well or don't code outside of work. Does it help your career? How can you get started? Yeah, and yeah, I would say just like visible work helps your career. You know, open source contributions are great for that. But, you know, I believe strongly that we shouldn't frame contributions just as code. You know, if somebody's writing documentation or they're writing a tutorial, then they're also contributing to that open source project. Um, and again, I'd say open source work is just one form of visible work, right? So if I'm talking to somebody who's looking to like build their career in that way, then like what I'm going to ask them is what they actually enjoy doing because like, it's like exercise, you know, the best workout is the one you enjoy, you know, the best external extra work on top of your day job is the work that you actually enjoy. Um, I think one of the ways that open source projects can be useful to people starting out, especially is learning how to work on something more complex and within like some existing application and constraints. The thing is, you need to find a project where the maintainers have the time and interest in supporting newer contributors, right? And then make that work worthwhile. So be responsive, take the feedback, and follow up. Um, I've seen a lot of like open source contributions fail, and often it's like somebody does something, and there was stuff they didn't know, you know, which is understandable. But then they got the feedback, and they didn't take it. They couldn't follow up on it, and so like that's they like. Your contribution is not the code you initially write. It's also taking the feedback and following it through and being determined to get it merged. Right. Honestly, the same way that you are in your day job a lot of the time. Like this is something that developers have to do, especially when they're like working on a new project or they're trying to contribute to like work that another team is is largely doing. Yeah, and I actually failed at this recently. Um, I submitted a uh, code change basically nil set of changes to swift itself the swift compiler mm -hmm. um because they they use lots of sanity and insanity in their code and i said hey can we rephrase this to be safety check or unsafe code mm -hmm. and i went through and mm -hmm. it was nearly all comments or like maybe two that were not comments nearly all comments and uh, it went through a discussion about actually could it be internal invariant rather than safety check. So okay, fine. I went through it again and made every file changing to this other thing. And then there's more comments saying could be this and that. And then it just went completely silent. I said, listen, I'm going to give you another month to try and resolve this. I've done my best twice now to make this mm -hmm. better. And then nothing came back. I'm, I'm just closing this. I've, I've had a go. I've done my best. I've tried to kick you about it. No one seems keen yeah. to push this one through. I have other things to do. <laughs> this is not, I'm not being paid to do this. This is me trying to help. And uh, I bailed out. So yeah. I, I, I ran out of resolve, sadly. Uh, so I'm not sure what it says about me, perhaps. I should probably have no, more resilience. No, I think resilience. that was a great thing to do. I think that was a great thing to do. But what you were trying to achieve was culture change. Yes. And, that's and you want, <laughs> right, it's harder. And you weren't there for the conversations that need to happen to get people bought into culture change. Right. So how can now, we... Now, they'd already done that work, right? And you send that PR. It's like, tell you what, if you send that PR to Dr. Go, I'd be like, amazing. I can't believe we missed this. Thank you. And I would merge it. You'd merge it I personally. Don't have those... <laughs> I would merge it personally. And then I would ask forgiveness from one of the developers. <laughs> um... <laughs> yeah, it's never, you know. Um, but, you know, like... They, they've not done that work, right? And like, you can't you can't show up as an external contributor and do that work for them, right? Like somebody needs to, like code is just an artifact of people, 
right? And like, if people are not ready for whatever you produce for them, like, they're not ready. You can't make them be ready, you know, in some cases like that. But, you know, sometimes you can. It's like, for example, if you're trying to add a feature or something, then you probably have to really make the case of the feature and bring people on that journey with you so that they understand why that's useful. And you also, as part of that, need to practice some level of empathy, right? So WordPress, for example, is a platform style open source project. And the majority of people contributing to it are paid to work on it. And they come from agencies, right? And agencies have their things that they care about in WordPress and their things that they want, but they're not the dominant users of WordPress, right? And so agencies might make a case of something that's really useful for agencies you know, who live every day in, in WordPress, but it can make it much harder for your average person who's just trying to maintain their website, right? Mm -hmm. And as you kind of propose what you want to do, you have to kind of keep in mind, like, not just like what you're advocating for, but like the people who are just not present in that community to advocate for themselves, but that that community still needs to serve. I think there's one massive takeaway there. I love the quote, uh, code is an artifact of people. <laughs> you know, because you say if, if people are ready for change, then you can't make them be ready for the change. And that's that's challenging. I think when external folks like me come into a project, there is a lot of culture to absorb before you even attempt a code change. I mean, all my previous Swift pull requests were the gardening type. This colon needs a space after it kind of thing. Really, <laughs> things that annoy me when I'm reading the documentation really annoy me a little bit here and there, but this is the first one I thought was actually a meaningful one. Oh, oh well. Yeah. Well, that's a great place to start with the colons. <laughs> and like, for what it's worth, I appreciate that you tried to make the language more inclusive and I hope one day they get to a place where they can appreciate it too. Me too. So moving on, how can we encourage uh, more people to get involved with open source contributions. And, and actually, Prathamesh has got a great point here saying that uh, some bigger repos even have bugs labeled for beginners, you know, starter bugs mm -hmm. and similar. Um, I think often called like good first issues or similar. Uh, and, and do you get many external contributions anyway? So it's kind I of think we, there, we really. try, we do a little bit more on Android than iOS, to be honest. Um, flagging first good issues is a good start, right? But it's not enough, right? You really need the documentation. You know, it doesn't matter how easy the issue is to fix because first people have to check out the project and build it, you know? And if you haven't made that really easy, they're never going to get to doing the issue. Hmm. Um, Secondly, you need to make time to work with people on those issues, right? Like you have to give them feedback, you have to help them with the gotchas, you have to merge it in and do a release. Like there's a bunch of work around just fixing a bug that like the person who's just fixing this first thing, like they're not gonna be able to do. I think in the kind of white code and public model, you know, we don't have people for whom it's their job to help external contributions. It's not like time that's factored into things. We don't have a dev row. Uh, people on the team are nice. You know, they want to see people succeed and they will try and help. Um, but I wouldn't say it's a great first project for somebody who was like looking to just get started, you know, with open source contributions or, or just get started with Swift and iOS in general. Uh, for mobile devs, I'd suggest getting involved with the library that you use. Um, they're more likely to have a better community around it and process around it. And they're also less likely to need UI design in order to get something in. Um, and UI design can be just as much of a blocker, more so for open source projects as it is kind of, you know, in people's regular work. Um, and then there's another option, which is to have a lot of depth in an area, right? So accessibility is a good one. Pretty much every project I know has missing some accessibility fixes, mm. you know, 
the, it's not being tested and used that way every day. And, you know, small accessibility issues, they can be quite straightforward to create a PR for and fix. And it can be a good intro to a project that you can like over time work on more. Yeah. So, so focusing on, on design briefly, you mentioned design's harder. Do you think that's because it's a bit more subjective? I mean, code, this patch makes the code twice as fast. You can't really argue with that. It's twice as fast now. We can do testing at A and B. Whereas like this makes the share icon more discoverable or something like, well, does it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, part of it is that like the designers are not contributing to open source in the way that developers are, right? So if you have a project that has a UI, like who are the designers working on it? Then I think consistency is more valuable, but less clear, right? So yes, this thing might objectively have made the share button easier to find, but if it doesn't match the pattern of everywhere else in the application, like, is it really a good change overall or not? Yeah. You also mentioned uh, uh, helping it, making it easy to check out and build the project. And I love mm -hmm. this because it's one of those things that you'd think would be very, very easy. <laughs> but in practice is often completely nightmarish. I mean, it, this goes back to um, Joel Spolsky's 12-point test for companies. Like one of them was, do you have a one-click build? Because often mm -hmm. you've got a 56-click build, and by the way, you've got to kick Laura in systems da -da 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 to do something beforehand. Da -da 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 -da. And it's like, wow, how did it get this bad? And you've got to install Python and Ruby and something else, no one's quite sure why. And then use OCaml just for fun. Um, mm -hmm. And, and <laughs> it, it often is fiendishly hard to build projects. And this is a real off-putting thing. If you cannot noodle around safely, on your local computer easily just just you don't want to talk to anyone it's a bit scary sometimes you don't want to talk to anyone just noodle around mm -hmm. locally and try something out quickly then it's much much harder to contribute presumably yeah totally i mean like our open source we use custom font we use a custom font and it makes our like first user checkout experience much harder like it's much easier to do it on android where we're not using the custom font than it is on on ios and you know, I think this is part of like, even even in mobile apps, right, where we do typically have this like one step build, mm. right, people modify things over time, you know, and how often as a developer, do you do a completely clean checkout with none of your setup, you know? Hopefully never, because it's Swift's very, very slow. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully never. So like these issues get found like, they come up when you have a new teammate, right? And hopefully you're onboarding them. And that person, like, this is their job now. And they have a bit more time. Maybe they have a bit more extra, you know, documentation. They're more experienced or whatever. And so, like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's that one gotcha. Here's the font or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. like, for an open source person, they have no one to talk, talk to you. Um, a couple of years ago, I made uh, an April Fool's joke about an Apple internal mode for Xcode which enabled Hey Xcode as a way to write your code, but also had Apple internal diagnostics. Like, you know, what are you doing that, you dumbass? Should have done this instead, Cam, messages in, in, in Swift. <laughs> and you could get that. It was it was all videoed live in Xcode by hacking around in the Swift source code and changing their strings to be the, the errors I wanted. And it was challenging because it's a bit of a 
a large project Swift using all the libraries behind the scenes. And so the errors were in all kinds of places and they weren't quite where I thought they'd be or what I thought it'd be. So I had to do a number of builds to get it exactly mm -hmm. the way I wanted. And every time I had to do what's called a tool chain build that you can put inside Xcode. And mm -hmm. for reasons that Apple have decided themselves, a tool chain build is always a completely clean build. So it was 90 minutes of build of it. Every little character I changed was a 90-minute build every time. It was great. <laughs> I admire your commitment to this joke. <laughs> I, I, I put in so much work to my April Fool's jokes. <laughs> I'm already planning next year's. I've got a problem, Kate. I need help. I need intervention. <laughs> I, you mentioned your fonts, and it's interesting that fonts something you can trip over because I think, um, I think it's Proxima Nova you use. And I believe yeah. you actually have a placeholder in place to avoid this kind of problem. You've sort of put, put a bit of work in to at least get something that works easily. And then on your side, you can then get the licensed fonts for the real build. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. But like, it was broken. When I first checked it out, I was like, oh, there's this placeholder. And like, you know, when I joined a year ago and I'm like, oh, it's not working, <laughs> working. <laughs> and then, you know, like we'd set it up and it wasn't being used regularly. Right. And so until I came in and just like tried it and I'm like, oh, I'm getting this weird font issue. And it's like, oh, yeah, this happened. This some little change that was for an entirely different reason had like broken the clean setup that we were trying to give external contributors. Like we we did fix it. Pretty sure. As you say, hiring folks does tend to point out these things pretty darn quickly. Yes, exactly. We are hiring. Drop that one in like there. Join our team. Yeah, we would love to would love to talk to you. There's a question here from Conrad Taylor. Does a Swift project have a one-click build? Conrad, the answer is no, I'm sorry, it does not. It's got a number of command line options that are obscurely documented and it's extraordinarily slow. Um Dan O'Leary's got a challenging one, which is uh where is a place to look? for open source projects to contribute to. And this is challenging because I think a lot of folks feel intimidated by the idea of working with open source because mm -hmm. you've, you, if you, let's face it, if you screw up Git, it's half the problem. If you make a mistake in your source <laughs> control stuff. Has anyone not screwed up Git? Like, well, it's exactly, just like yeah. a thing that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but also that, but also, you know, bad code, bad PRs, bad comments, typos. It's intimidating. What mm -hmm. advice do you have for folks who are trying to find a good project to look for? Yeah, I mean, some open source projects are hostile because they have a bad culture, you know? Um, but some open source projects seem like unwelcoming because people are just busy and to the point, right? So I'd never encourage somebody to put up with toxic behavior, but I would encourage people to like learn to take the feedback and improve because it's a useful skill for anybody, right? And so like, do not expect when you do a tiny open source contribution that people will roll out a welcome parade for you because, <laughs> you know, like it was a tiny contribution, right? Um, so thanks for the feedback. It's a really good book on this, right? And you know, you're not your code. Feedback about your code is just an opportunity to grow as a developer. I think the key is to be really realistic about what you can contribute and be realistic about what you can expect, right? If you're really inexperienced and you need a lot of help, you know, just be honest with yourself about that and look for a place where you can realistically get it. Uh, there are some great programs out there like Outreachy where you know people have signed up to be be mentors and spend you know hours of their time helping you know their kind of less experienced programmer become successful. Mm. Um, 
And yeah, and then the other thing is just remember that code contributions are not the only contributions. Writing really great bugs with really clear reproduction steps is a contribution. So is writing documentation, tutorials, and those can be an easier place to start than, you know, like going straight in and, and writing, like improving the code or whatever. Um, and I think finally, just always, always, always follow the documentation. You know, maintainers have their own priorities. They have their own pressures. And it's really important to be respectful of their time. This is how I would suggest approaching an open source project. For finding one, like, I think it's come back to what I said earlier, you know, like find something that you use or feel excited about or have some kind of connection to like those are great places to start if you're really coming in from nothing i would suggest looking at the list of outreachy projects because those are open source projects where there is some kind of expectation of mentorship even if you're not applying for outreachy like look at the projects there and then go through them and take your time and find the one where you think oh this is this is something i can get excited about this is something that i can contribute to yeah, and I would encourage folks. I know it's it's one of those screamingly obvious things that I wish we could all take for granted. All those people who receive your pull requests and want to review your code, they're real people. <laughs> um, and they can be offended if you're mean to them and they can just shut you off if you're just being harassy or abusive or why is my PR not been merged or whatever. Uh, and this is true, full stop. It's not open source. You know, I, I, I remember uh, one of the Xcode team at the time pointed out a, a radar number to me that was literally FU, 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 pasted again and again and again because of one of the changes they made. They were so angry. And I, I get it. You want to kind of vent your rage at something, but scream into the void. Scream on Reddit where everyone's an asshole, right? Don't scream into bug reports. <laughs> <laughs> These are real yeah, people, you know? It. Yeah, that's where you should go. Just go to your people on the Orange website and just wallow in a cesspool of hate. Yeah. Don't don't file angry PRs saying, why have you made this change? I hate you. It's just, I know. It's just come on, have an essence of humanity to these people who are doing their best, often in their spare time. And uh, you, I, yeah. I, I, I get it. People are there trying to help. You want to help? You want to make a change? That's great. But just be patient be welcoming be nice take time and 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 you know it, it doesn't take much honestly i hope it doesn't take much come on folks i should be begging for this kind of basic behavior here but come on <laughs> i think it's like people's work environment you know like github is the work environment for every developer on the team right. app store reviews you know they come into asana i read every single one of them they're my work environment right and you know some of the things that people will say in an app store review or when I get, I'm like, would you come into somebody's office and say this to them? Mm. You know, like there's just a level of indirection here and it's like, you know, okay, I get it. Like something broke and you're upset about it. We actually want to help you, you know, but like don't come in and abuse us. Yeah, That's it. That's all we're asked for really. Just don't come in and abuse us and we'll be quite happy. <laughs> such a low bar it really is it's the lowest possible bar but no that's the internet for actually me. it was kind of hilarious when we were having this whole blow up i was like all right well github is your work environment i do not expect people to be abused as part of their day-to-day -day work so this thread is where the abuse is nobody needs to go there i'm going to deal with it you can do your work in a place where you're not being yelled at you know 
And <laughs> the conspiracy theories for me having like a separate bug, you know, rather than addressing it in this like cesspool that had descended into like, I don't know, Goodwin's law was broken, you know? It's like, oh, they're just trying to time, like time to fix and that's why they, and I'm like, no, you've created an abusive work environment for my team mm. and I'm dealing with it. That's my job. They don't have to. So you wouldn't in that case have shut down the bug report? Well, no, because we were engaging with it. Like we were fixing it. We were hearing people's feedback and we were fixing it. Um, and, you know, like it's not my first rodeo, right? Like I, I worked on releasing Gutenberg, which was a super fun time, you know? And I, I, um, I just make very uh, factual, very boring statements. And I just let people fight around me and I ignore them. And if they get to me, I take a deep breath and I tell myself that that person will die alone and miserable. <laughs> That's a good place to pause this whole topic and go into our third section, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Kate, you are a hugely successful speaker, having spoken at some of the biggest uh, conferences in iOS originally, but also beyond there now, including TriSwift, UIConf, Pragma Conference, Swift Heroes, Lead Dev, Full Stack Fest, and more. I know a lot of folks would love to speak at those events. I mean, these are the sort of big hitter events. So, so, so tell us, when you were at the very beginning of preparing for your kind of talk, how do you even come up with ideas for what you want to try and talk about? No, before we talk about speaking, I do want to put one thing out there. I did not give any public talks in 2020. Like I actually planned this before the pandemic. I think when we were in Verona together, I was in this space, but at the end of every year, I'd be like, oh, I'm retiring from public life. Um, and then at some point I would have agreed to something or I would agree to something. But in 2020, I was like, no, I just like want a break. I'm not going to give any talks. And the pandemic made it really easy to stick to this. Um, and then honestly, I'm not doing that many talks in 2021 either. I'm doing lead dev because I love them. But like, I've just been replying to invitations saying, unfortunately, I've realized that I hate giving talks on Zoom. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Right. to the point, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I just find it so hard. There's this like lack of audience feedback. You know, I feel like I'm just speaking into the void from the desk that I work at every day. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of wanted to put it out because, yeah, because I don't think I'm alone in this, you know, like if people are out there thinking like, oh, I should be doing more or I should be like agreeing to more of this, like whatever, like, you know what, we've been living through a global pandemic, you've been surviving, whatever you've been doing is fine, it's enough. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I feel no guilt and no regret for any of the opportunities I've passed up on over the past year. And, you know, I did things I enjoyed it's enough. Um, but, you know, I do hope that one day we will no longer be giving talks on Zoom and then I will be replying saying, I would love to come to some exciting place and do something cool. Um, so for me, any talk starts with this core idea, this like one thing that I want people to take away. Um, and that turns into a structure. And usually I follow the like standard three part structure, but I'm comfortable enough with it now that I'll kind of play with it a little bit. Um, and often the ideas I'm using, I'm giving in any talk is like, it's not new. I've been like writing about it. I've been workshopping it, you know, like 
things like this or podcasts are like a great opportunity to see like what people are asking me about and what people want to know and then kind of write something around those topics and maybe eventually turn it into a talk. Um, and then the last layer is this metaphor. Um, so my talk for lead dev, I lay it on all this stuff about penguins as a metaphor for process. And I'm just like the word penguin and process are entirely interchangeable in my talk. Um, and so then the talk is more on this narrative, you know, I'm like trying to take people on some kind of journey, you know, and kind of come back, like tie it to the whatever, like, you know, I frame it, I take people on a journey, and then I come to the end and I tie it back to where we were at the beginning, you know? Yeah, it's definitely true that obviously the last, well, 18 months now have been quite strange for uh, conferences. And in fact, we're seeing very few now taking place you know some of the biggest hitters now are not coming back this year at all either yeah. last year they tried it it didn't work out too well or they skipped last year and skipping this year too i don't i don't know if some are going to shut down entirely um certainly I've, I've been trying to do talks still i know what you mean about mm -hmm. talking to avoid but i feel that for whatever platform i have I need to be using that to support these events if I can help them stay mm -hmm. afloat for another year. So like last year, I did a, a, a one-day workshop for uh, a Toronto uh, mm -hmm. conference and it was literally just to keep them afloat. I, I, I wasn't paid a penny, you know, it, it was all uh, pro bono, but it kept them going for another year, hopefully to come back this year in person or next year in person. And it's that kind of thing. I, I feel it's, you know, it's there's not, not pressure, but I feel I need to do something. Even though you're right, it is quite hard surviving as it is right now sometimes i feel <laughs> i've got to go a bit further but also i it's given me a chance to experiment you know i did two talks last yeah. year one at uiconf and one at ns spain both with my eldest daughter who's now 11 she was 10 at the time and she took part in both talks and was really involved in them uh one of them was like a choose your own adventure where you've got to vote on what we did next in each piece of uh things you chose your own pathway through the the talk mm -hmm. so it's, it's a chance to support people and experiment but it's a lot. It's a lot of work. I, I find well, it. you're a very nice person. <laughs> One of the many things I like about you. <laughs> Maybe. Thank you very much. But I wasn't going for that. To, I was like fishing for praise there, Kate. Um, no, it's, but it's... I think it's good. You know, that actually the one thing I did agree to this year was lead dev, and they focus on this. Uh, they do this thirteen week, seven sessions. I think every other week, something like that, and it's much more experiential. And so the idea is that you go with your team. There are prompts. You know, so uh, I'm in the process section, which is interesting because I hate process. Although I did love penguins until I researched them for that talk. And now I have mixed feelings about penguins, um, <laughs> you know, and there's like three talks around a theme. And then there's a panel at the end. And, you know, I'm going with like four people from DuckDuckGo and we have these discussion breaks. And it's really I think the way they've done it is brilliant, you know, because they have embrace the format of online and they try to make it better and they make it more comfortable like recording my talk with them was a much better experience than just like being at home with my laptop like talking into the void it is it is hard it is kind of my job also talking into the void <laughs> <laughs> i do a lot of videos like to youtube and it's just like me chatting away hi folks how are you going just to a camera uh mm -hmm. You get used to it. <laughs> it's, it's it is odd though. You never really fully get used to it. But uh, <laughs> and it, the thing is, I'm not know, even trying. I'm like whatever. <laughs> I'm gonna do some lasering. I'm gonna do some cross stitch. I'm gonna have a video with 
poor white trash talk penguins, you know, like. <laughs> I think because conferences are more than just giving a talk. You go there and you hear a, yeah. a bunch of brilliant talks. You get to do some amazing networking and meeting your friends or spontaneity mm -hmm. happens. And it, it, it is so much more. And I really, really miss it. I mean, I miss events a lot. And the minute WWDC is back live, I'll be there on day one. I cannot <laughs> wait for that. I just miss, I, honestly, honestly, Kate, it sounds pathetic, but I just miss my friends. I just miss my friends and giving them a hug and saying, how is your life going? What's up? How are your kids? You know, oh, how's your kitchen renovation going? Whatever it is. I just miss life. And uh, yeah. You know, also, I, I totally break agree my kids with too. you. <laughs> I, you know, this, this was the thing that I realized is that talks on Zoom are for me all the worst part of giving a talk. All the prep, all the anxiety, you know, all the like, oh my God, is my hair okay? Have I checked my lipstick? But like worse, because it's in high definition video, if you're on stage and you've got to put on lipstick, it's fine. No one's really going to see, you know, and none of the bits that I loved, like none of the like talking to people afterwards and like hearing what they got out of my talk, none of seeing my friends, none of like seeing some like new exciting place. Like I was getting none of the things that made the whole experience worthwhile for me, but the things that you know, I do find hard, we're just compressed into like a kind of very intense, unbearable period in a way that also makes it a little bit harder to disconnect from work before giving a talk, for example. Absolutely. So you're right. Yeah, Zoom does neatly encapsulate all the bad parts giving a talk. There's so many catchy quotes from you, Kate. You're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> now, thinking just about technical talks, mm -hmm. what do you think makes for a great technical talk or, or or more broadly a great technical speaker yeah i love people who are really enthusiastic about what they're doing i think it's regardless of if it's technical or non-technical but you know especially with technical talks like um you know like i remember like natasha the robots talks or Christina Tai, she used to talk so much about WatchKit and she just like loved WatchKit. And I would go and watch her speak about WatchKit and I was like, wow, I want to be this interested in WatchKit or like at all interested in WatchKit, honestly. Um, <laughs> so so I, yeah, like I, I just love that that passion. I think that's something that you have too and that's one of the reasons why you're like a really good, really good speaker. Um, the second thing is impact, you know, often when people go really deep on the what, they miss the why, um, but you really have to give people that at the start of the talk, you know, tell them when and why they should care about what you're talking about, because it helps them contextualize everything else you're going to say. Um, and then the third thing is empathy, you know, a great talk makes the people watching it feel more careful more capable. This is something that Kathy Sierra would always talk about. She would talk about like making users more badass. And I so agree, mm. right? And a bad talk makes people feel stupid. So I think a great talk comes from this idea of like, what do you as a speaker have to give the audience? And how do you give it to them in a way that they will enjoy it and retain it? I, I have so much deep love for Kathy Sierra. Um, really inspirational on so many levels so thoughtful mm -hmm. so careful so mm -hmm. encouraging so supporting hideously treated by the internet yeah really a shocking story that should embarrass everyone even today but i only mm -hmm. had the chance to work with her just once and it was just she was so encouraging and so nice and so lovely it actually oh I, I even i even tell, tell folks 
go and check out headrush.typepad.com and just look through the charts. Just the, the charts, the pictures she has, her favorite pictures from the last uh, years of her doing a blog. And everyone's like, mm-hmm. yes, 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 all the way down. She just nails it every time. And and, 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 and you're right in terms of um, enthusiasm. I, mean, I, I think about talks as uh, being enthusiastic or being entertaining or being educational. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't structure them in a way people expect. I actually put educational as being last on my list of needs in a talk because if you're at a, a, a conference which is one day or a short one two days or even three mm-hmm. days or dub dub five days and it's a 40 minute talk you're gonna get oh my god eight talks in that one day times two 16 talks if you have a, a deeply hardcore educational talk you're gonna mm-hmm. just people will just be overwhelmed with information really if they've paid the three or four hundred bucks to go to an event for two days if they get one or two things out of that that saves them 15 minutes a day for the next Mm -hmm. you know two three years they've got their money's worth and so helping them hit those key points being enthusiastic being entertaining goes a very very long way in helping them prioritize and remember and the example i always give is david attenborough uh, on, on, mm-hmm. on TV, the naturalist who will look at an ant hive and and be super in love with this ant hive, and it you you are also in, in feeling as well. You, you want the the lizard to survive being attacked by a snake, whatever it is he's filming. You really root for the creatures at hand because he loves them, you love them, and that goes a mm-hmm. very very long way. And when I see someone with the best will in the world have a deeply educational talk but not be excited by it, I just think, well, if you aren't excited why should why should i be excited yeah totally i think probably my pet peeve is when people go over time you know like just don't do that don't do that like that's just a sign you did not prepare you were not organized you did not prioritize i'm like my signature move is to just come in under time and walk off stage and those extra minutes are just like a gift that i give people to the, <laughs> to like let them process everything that's been going on so for some context folks the last time i met kate was in new york where she introduced me in a talk called swifty wine 25 minutes and actually, oh you did go over time <laughs> To be fair, it was called Swifty Y in 25 asterisk minutes. And in the corner was, no way, we're going way over. And I had warned Natasha ahead of time, I'm going way over. And she's like, nah, don't worry about it. It's basically guidance. So it, it was fine. It was fine. But I still feel deeply hurt by your comments, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten that. Forgotten that. I'm sorry. But I, I guess like one of the things is for a 25 minute talk on like that kind of scale of thing like it's always really tight right and in that case you made a deliberate decision i remember now you talking at extremely high speeds yeah. <laughs> even for a british person it was you know. very very fast yeah. very, very good. <laughs> um but that was like deliberate you know whereas i think kind of my pet peeve is like you know that whole like if i had had more time to prepare i would have given a shorter Right, right, right. I think that's the only time in my life I've been applauded for stopping and drinking from a bottle of water. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, um, <laughs> moving on. Uh, I, I know many people approach talking and they're a bit worried. And, you know, mm-hmm. Prathamesh asking here, uh, how do you deal with stage fright? Because that's the biggest reason why he hasn't given a talk at a local mm-hmm. Swift India uh, chapter. But I think more broadly... Um, many people cite this idea of imposter syndrome mm-hmm. as, a, as a major problem. They think, well, I'm I'm not qualified to talk. You know, there's 
people out there who work on Swift itself or work in the library who might have talked about it on their behalf. And in fact, mm -hmm. the very first time we met, it was like midnight in Verona, I think, walking home from a, a restaurant back to the hotel. Mm -hmm. um, I think we talked about this exact same thing. Um, and I'd love to know, I mean, I remember your answer, actually. You told me in person, but the, obviously the audience was not there. So <laughs> I'd love to know what you think is the underlying problem here, what imposter syndrome really actually is. Yeah, I think you got one of my imposter syndrome rants, but I can do those live too, you know? <laughs> like, honestly, like, I hate the term imposter syndrome. I hate it. I think it is a term that has been used to uh, pathologize women and then to be more inclusive, every Indo Index person, uh, for how they feel in toxic environments where they're unwelcome, you know? And if there were no women, if there were no people of color at some event, like, do the people not applying have imposter syndrome? Or have they just looked at the situation and decided, probably rightly, that they're probably not going to be welcome? Um, my friend Chuki and I, we ran this uh, newsletter called Technically Speaking for years. And we used to make a really big deal about two things codes of conduct and speaker travel. Um, and we would only share events that met our standards. And one of the things I'm really proud of that we did was I think we changed the conversation and we normalized expecting those things. And we took it out of the back channel, you know, um, so that it was normal to expect it. It was normal to talk about it. It was normal to ask for it. It was normal for it to be clear, you know, because before one thing that we used to see pretty regularly was men had their speaker costs travel, their travel costs covered, and women did not, for example, but nobody was talking and nobody knew. Um, so, you know, and, and one of the things we saw was that the events that did the work, like TriSwift, like Lead Dev, they built more diverse lineups, they built uh, more diverse audiences, and the ones that didn't just got left behind. Um, so I think things have improved a lot, right? But, you know, one of my worst experiences in the iOS community was I pulled out of an event because they didn't, the organizer didn't have a code of conduct and he didn't want one. And yeah, and this, right. And this was like seven or eight years ago. It wasn't like a lifetime ago. It was seven or eight years ago. And, you know, the organizer had a total mantrum. I got a bunch of hate online. Somebody literally wrote a hit piece on me. It's like wild, you know, people need better hobbies. And you know, why, right? Like I had some principles, I had some standards that I was advocating for and I was adhering to them myself, you know? Um, and I think things have been better, but you know, like this stuff leaves scars, you know? And there were still events I will not attend. There were still people I avoid because of what happened, right? Because you don't have to forgive people who've been abusive to move on. So- and Did you use the term mantrum? I haven't heard that oh, particular- yeah. <laughs> yes. Is that what I think it means? <laughs> yeah. Okay, G good, carry yeah. on. <laughs> okay, but you know, I think when somebody's in the confident, you know, my first question is why, right? And, you know, sometimes it's environmental and I never want to discount those environmental reasons, right? Like if an environment is unwelcoming, if an environment is abusive, you don't have imposter syndrome. You are like having a normal reaction to being treated badly. I see, I but the sense. second most common reason after environmental after environmental factors is that people just need some help. And this is something that I think we need to normalize is um, giving and receiving help in these situations, right? Like I would not have got to where I have as a speaker if people hadn't helped me. Like Chuki helped me a ton, 
Natasha helped me. Um, and I think the responsibility that we have when we've progressed is to reach back and help other people progress too. Oh, I, I could not agree more. And I I don't know why, but it's not, it's not iOS, it's generally in development. A lot of folks will write blog posts about something they're using in their code. And mm -hmm. they've learned this somewhere else. But for some reason, it's seen as a badge of shame to link to where you found it from. We kind of learn this thing, then pull the ladder up behind us and say, yes, I've invented this cool thing. Actually, as opposed mm -hmm. to, you know, I read it in this book or I got it from this website and linking to them. Whereas in, in every other field, having mm -hmm. like a bibliography of where you got your ideas from adds to your credence. It makes you more trustworthy and more reliable. But in computing science and often in, in talks, we very rarely cite sources. This is where I got this idea from. Go and check them out. They were really awesome. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and there's a ton of value to amalgamating the like 10 different things you had to read to figure out something out, mm. you know? One of my most popular blog posts still is one that I wrote years ago, and it's called Testing Intense on Android, like stabbing yourself in the eye with a blunt implement. Nice. <laughs> because honestly, that's what it's like. And <laughs> I, like, I like went through so many things, so many things figuring this out. And actually, you know, one thing I try to do is, you know, I don't often get to do technical work anymore, but like if I'm like, on some kind of journey where I'm fighting with something, I like take a notes document and I just add as I go, like tried this, you know, read this, you know, took this from it. And then, you know, it allows me to kind of write like that kind of blog post, which is just like, I suffered. And here is the documentation of my suffering. And maybe <laughs> you could suffer less. My descent into madness starts here with intense and Android and then, <laughs> ah, and then screaming and then swearing. And then here's what actually works at the end. We like this bit and that's the end. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> actually, I finding folks, what doesn't work. <laughs> well, yeah, I get folks help. asking me all the time, you know, how do I get started writing for iOS? And actually, I often point them towards Natasha the Robot's old Swift blog. Because what she did was she'd say something like, I'm learning functional programming right now. I've discovered Flatmap. Here's what I've found so far. And she'd post her code and explain her thinking. And then people would say, oh, have you tried this? And she'd oh, I didn't know that happened. She'd add that to her blog post. And then someone would say, oh, about this and, and add and add and add and add. And it made it really valuable. And if she'd come in by saying, I have figured out how to use Flatmap, whatever it is, I, here's the answer. People wouldn't want to contribute. People wouldn't want to be involved. And actually having mm -hmm. that, I'm, I'm learning here's what I figured out so far, dramatically mm -hmm. changed the tone of what you're trying to say. And people want to be involved. People want to say, hey, have you tried this? Have you tried this? And it, as you add that, it makes it more and more valuable. It just keeps on getting better and better. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just like Natasha's brilliance, right? Is she built a community around learning in public. And like, that's what TriSwift is today, is like this community of learning and this real... Um, commitment to creating a supportive environment for people to learn hmm. now do you personally get nerves i mean before you speak you get nervous before you get on stage <laughs> oh yeah of course of course and you know the thing i get nervous long before i get on stage you know so there's the moment of agreeing to the talk <laughs> and then what have I done? No. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And if it's within, you know, that period every year, it's like, but I had decided to retire from public life in a very, just in a very dramatic, you know, Jane Austen kind of way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. You have to, um, you know, and 
the thing that helps is that I remind myself that I'm nervous because it's important to me. Hmm. And then the way that I manage those nerves is that I honor that importance and I prepare. Yeah, and I think that says a lot about you and other speakers in the same position because you can kind of, as an audience member, feel this speaker hasn't done the work required to respect where they are that makes sense like mm-hmm. if you've paid 300 bucks to be in the audience you you kind of expect the person who's delivering the talk to have put the time in to you know get their talk in the right length and cover the right points and not stumble through their slides like it's the first time seeing them um mm-hmm. and, and, and so if you are feeling under pressure a little bit it means you are taking it seriously your body is exactly it's a bit a bit neanderthal right you know it's it's fight or flight right the adrenaline mm-hmm. pumping through am i going to run away or am i going to stand <laughs> on stage and deliver this talk uh and i i like that because i i think it's a good response it's like my body's saying am i going to fight or am i going to flight and i i mentally make myself choose fight every time channel the adrenaline into excitement and enthusiasm i'm quite uh 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 I gesture a lot on stage. <laughs> Often my mm-hmm. move, my move ring will close on my watch because it said, hey, <laughs> you've moved around so much in the last 20 minutes. You've got your whole move thing done. I, I move around a lot. I'm enthusiastic on stage. I, I power through with a, a adrenaline. But I want to see folks who are excited. I want to see folks. And, and I get I get nervous. I mean, everyone gets nervous at some point. And, you know, particularly the that New York talk I mentioned earlier was exactly carefully timed. It was really, really hard to do. And small scripts that have been hideous on stage, but it's really, really hard to do. That's probably the second hardest one I've done in my life. So I get nervous about that kind of thing, but it's. But you're nervous there because you're pushing yourself. You know, you were like (laughs) deliberately, but this is deliberate practice, right? It's when you deliberately leave your comfort zone and try something. Yeah. And I I regret it every time. (laughs) (laughs) I used to like always say that like past Kate was trying to kill future Kate, you know? (laughs) But then I went to therapy and Pascade's over time got a lot nicer. So now Pascade is mainly just being good to future Kate and sending her presents, which I like, you know, but still occasionally a Pascade agrees to something and a future Kate has doubts about it, but then it's fine. (laughs) Wants to have a a stern conversation with (laughs) Pascade. Yeah, no, but like Pascade used to be a demon. Like it was really (laughs) quite on the table that a Pascade would murder a future Kate. Like Pascade always thought that future Kate would be superhuman, right? And I've learned that I should expect future Kate to be uh, just as, just about the same as present day Kate. Wasn't that a a movie, an action film about uh, there being parallel universes and one person was traveling between the morgues. Every time every time they killed themselves in another universe, they gained their power and became stronger and stronger and stronger. I watched too many movies. <laughs> I've not seen this movie. It sounds quite disturbing. Uh, the hardest talk I ever did, actually, was in Latvia. And it, it was a talk where I the, the premise was that you could talk to Siri and it was useless, which is fairly simple, right? It gets it wrong. And I say, hey, there's, there's a command line thing you can run to increase the AI. And it, I, I say, hey, Siri, did this. It's stupid. I make it level two. Oh, it's quite smart. Make it level three. It's super smart. And I say, well, actually, you can go beyond three and nothing happens. Look, here's seven, nothing happens. Eight, nothing happens. Nine. And on nine, I recorded my Mac going complete full-on crash back to the Apple screen. I'm like, oh, sorry, sorry, folks. My Mac's, throw us going, Mac. Max just crashed. <laughs> it, it, it reboots into this massive spinning Siri sphere. And it says, hello, Paul. 
<laughs> and the whole rest of the talk is Siri doing the talk on my behalf. It's about machine learning, the talk on machine learning. And in the talk, Siri asks me questions about like, what's your favorite film, Paul? And I say, I like Aliens. It's got a strong female lead. And Siri goes, oh, well, uh, I, I like The Terminator. I say, oh, yeah, it's also got a strong female lead. And they say, oh, and, and other reasons kind of thing, because it's got obviously Skynet in there and stuff. But I, I have to I have to memorize ahead of time every possible question Siri is going to ask me for 45 minutes. Otherwise, I answer the wrong thing based on what it'll say next in the recording. It was like, it was so hard to do. It was so stupid to agree to a talk like that. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> Sounds really fun, though. I bet people enjoyed it. it. It was fun. What I hadn't anticipated and this is entirely my mistake, is that uh, delivering a talk in a country where English is second language, where Siri's pronunciation isn't brilliant, creates artificial speed bumps, I think. That's my own fault. Mm -hmm. Anyway, massive tangent. Um, let's the, the last question I have for you, we've, we've touched on this briefly, but I want to go over it more clearly. Um, apart from just hearing great talks from speakers, what would you say your main reasons are or developers in general for attending conferences? Yeah, I, I think it's really important for people to have a broader perspective. And I think events can be a really effective way to get that, to hear from like multiple different people about what they find important, what they're doing. Um, and like, it's so important to connect to other attendees. Um, I think it's often the case, especially in bigger companies, that people get very into like how they do things at that company mm. and over time get more and more disconnected with like what's happening in that space generally, um, how the industry is trending. Um, so I think just like that perspective is really important. Um, I have on a post-it note just here um, a list of things that I think people are struggling with in the pandemic. Oops, sorry. Hello. My thing's got a hello. bit odd. Sorry, my uh, hello. Sorry, hello. Me. No, it's my fault entirely. The uh, it's gone to a, a flag. There we go. We're back. <laughs> Sorry about that. Carry <laughs> on. Carry on. So I was saying I have like a post-it on my desk, which is the three things that I think people are struggling with in the pandemic, and one is downtime, like lower quality downtime, which means makes it harder to recharge. The other is social isolation. And the third is perspective, you know, and you notice when people are lacking that perspective is that they come into conflict in a much narrower way, right? And that actually productive conflict, which I think is good, like a broader perspective is really helpful. And that's why I'm always like, go out there and get the perspective, find out what other people are doing. Um, and then, you know, sharing back, you know, which is great for employer branding. I love people on my teams to be visible in the community. Um, and talking about what they're doing and, and, you know, however it is they like to do that, right? Um, and firstly, I like them to do it because I think it's good for their career, mm. you know, and I want to support their learning and growth. And secondly, like when people do that, it helps us hire other great people. And I believe, as I said earlier, you are hiring. We are, yes. What are you hiring for, Kate? <laughs> <laughs> We're hiring for our entire Native Apps team. So uh, that is Android developers, iOS and macOS developers, and C-sharp developers. You do C-sharp as well? Oh, Windows, presumably, of course. Sorry. <laughs> well, no, Windows, Android, what do they use nowadays on Windows? I don't know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> There's a macOS app for DuckDuckGo? On Android, they're mainly using Kotlin. Right. But there's a DuckDuckGo macOS app? We have a Safari extension. 
but we have a lot of unreleased exciting things that we're working on and my team is at the center of all of it oh i see and are mm-hmm. you it's a really remotely exciting. or on site only <laughs> Uh, there is no site to be on, so. Ooh, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's that is tempting right there. Well, listen, thank you <laughs> so much for, for all your time here. You've been really generous with time. Um, where can folks find you on the internet? Yeah, so I'm uh, on Twitter talking about penguins and raccoons. Uh, yeah. If you want to learn disturbing things about penguins it's been on my timeline although you know i should branch out um kate hstn on twitter uh kate with a c dot blog is my blog and uh yeah those are the best two places to find me fantastic and once again i want to thank our sponsor instabug they've got a one uh stop sdk just drag their thing in you can have bug reporting crash reporting uh and app performance monitoring right there in one sdk and folks, if you enjoyed this uh, podcast recorded with Kate, subscribe to the channel, hit a like, leave a comment, all those nice youtube things. And thank you for coming along, asking lots of great questions to Kate. Hopefully you had all your good answers. Uh, there's one more really fast here. How can we apply for a job? I'm guessing tweet at you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, well, you can. But techdogo.com slash careers. Everything's on there. You can fill in a thing and someone will be in touch. Marvellous. Thanks a lot, folks. Take care. Until next time. Bye.